Hello, I'm Maya Nowens, WISS Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization and host of the WISS Sound Strategic Podcast. 2021 is the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic and the first of recovery. While some countries emerge from lockdown, others face further devastation. But everywhere, COVID-19 remains a commanding issue shaping every aspect of life. For geopolitics, it is a global natural experiment testing state effectiveness, social cohesion, and international relations. It has forced massive, urgent, and complex decisions, especially in striking difficult balances between state power and citizens' rights, openness and security in flows across states, and between short-term national interest and the collective global good in vaccine production and distribution. The unprecedented cooperation gap between the demand for and supply of global governance identified by Strategic Survey 2020 did not widen and in some ways narrowed. But this hopeful development may not last, for the possibilities of cooperation as of war depend on power. And some of the most powerful states have been honing their weapons short of war as their relations deteriorate. To help discuss the main themes and trends identified in this year's strategic survey, from cooperation deficit to the prospect of conflict over Taiwan, as well as the winners and losers in the global vaccine diplomacy efforts, I'm joined by Nigel Gold Davies, Nigel Linkster, and David Gordon. Dr. Nigel Gold Davis is the editor of Strategic Survey and Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia. Nigel Ingster is a Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity and China at the IISS, and Dr. David Gordon is the IISS's Senior Advisor for Geoeconomics and Strategy. Nigel Gold Davis, Nigel Ingster, David Gordon, welcome onto the show. So, Nigel Gold Davis, for those new to the Strategic Survey, can you give our listeners a quick sense of what they can find in this year's publication? Strategic Survey is the annual publication of the IISS devoted to geopolitics. It seeks to give a comprehensive annual overview of all the most important developments in a single place. It's comprehensive. It covers every region. And there are a number of cross-cutting issues that are globally important that it addresses as well. This year, there are a number of highlights, a number of sort of issues that run through many of the individual essays. It's hard to generalize. There's a great diversity of issues that we cover. But one sort of red thread, so to speak, is the severe deficit of cooperation. The demand for cooperation is greater than the supply. There are a lot of reasons why major powers should naturally be working together closely. Uh, One is the pandemic, of course. A second is global warming and the climate crisis. A third is the the long-standing challenge of ensuring strategic stability in a a nuclear age. And finally, the importance of cooperating on terrorism, perhaps more focus on that given the Taliban's uh, seizure of power in Afghanistan. And yet we see conflict and rivalry more than cooperation in many of these areas. There have been certainly some cooperation achievements recently. Uh, We've seen national commitments to carbon neutrality, for example. We've seen the Abraham Accords begin to reshape the diplomacy uh, of the Middle East. We've seen the renewal of the New START Treaty, the last significant part of the arms control architecture between the major powers. But overall, there is far less cooperation, far more rivalry and distrust than objectively the world needs right now. Nigel, I note that the return of geopolitics to the West is another line that runs throughout this year's strategic survey. Can you speak a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, this is really striking development. In the past, broadly speaking, geopolitics is something that the West has had to concern itself with, but uh, as an external rather than internal issue. And the past year, I think more than any other that I can think of, brings home the fact that geopolitical disruptions, tensions, quite profound questions in some cases of societal resilience within the West is now something that has come home to the West, so to speak. Two big examples. One, of course, is the events of January the 6th in Washington, where I currently am. The most severe challenge to uh, American political institutions since the Civil War. And those issues haven't gone away. The polarization remains very strong. Perhaps we'll talk about that later. Secondly, this past year was the year in which Brexit was finally done. But is Brexit finished? Are its consequences uh, all worked out? It seems not. There are still very significant issues uh, about not only the UK's longer-term relationship with the EU, but potentially even the uh, impact that Brexit might have on the territorial integrity of Britain itself, the Northern Ireland question, even the Scottish question as well. We've seen in the past few weeks decisions made in Poland, which seem to challenge the primacy of EU law there. So geopolitics is coming home to the West. It's something within and not only sort of external to, uh, to this part of the world. Lastly, what about the rise of geoeconomics as well? I think this is extremely important and part of a larger trend of uh, what you might call the securitization of uh, international flows. We have a situation here where all the major powers are increasingly looking at their trade and investment relations uh, with political adversaries through the lens of security rather than or as well as through the lens of wealth creation. We see uh, more and more sanctions being used, and not only by the West, but against the West itself. Uh, growing concerns about domestic vulnerability uh, to external uh, economic actors and the ways that domestic arrangements need to recast and protect themselves against malign influence uh, from without. But we see also securitization of other issues too. Carbon emissions, especially, of course, a major security issue now. And with the latest uh, COP26 climate change conference uh, impending in Glasgow, that's at the top of the agenda. And finally, cyber relations as well, the securitization of data flows. So geopolitics is spreading from military to a whole range of non-military domains. Moving on to Nigel Ingster, your senior advisor for cybersecurity and China at the IISS. And you wrote an essay on Taiwan-China relations in this year's strategic survey. So how has the past year shaped relations across the Taiwan Strait? And how likely is a full-scale conflict, something that we talk about a lot more in the news these days? The reality is that Taiwan has moved to the center of a contest between the United States and China. It's become the sum of all fears, if you like, in so far as for China, achieving the great uh, rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which is in effect Xi Jinping's second centenary goal, it has been made abundantly clear that national reunification, in other words, taking back Taiwan, is an essential prerequisite to achieving this outcome. This was made clear by Xi Jinping 
a little bit at the uh, party centenary celebration, but more recently at the 110th celebration of the Xinhai Revolution that brought about you know, the end of dynastic China and, and introduced modern politics. And so in this sense, you've got a situation in which China is absolutely determined to get Taiwan back, although it has made clear that its preference is to do so peacefully against the reality that within Taiwan itself, support for peaceful reunification has effectively become vanishingly small. And there really is no political, credible political constituency in Taiwan that is capable of arguing in favor of peaceful reunification under one country, two systems. And then you've got a United States that from China's perspective seems determined to keep China down, to keep China boxed in, and has an Indo-Pacific strategy that in, amongst other things talks about ensuring China cannot ever achieve sustained air and sea domination within the first island chain, talking about protecting the first island chain. And of course, for the United States, control of the first island chain you know, is critical to, to its posture within the uh, Indo-Pacific region. So you've got a situation here in which China and the United States are caught up in a dynamic. Neither of them actually wants to go to war, but the increase in activity, military activity in and around Taiwan invariably creates the potential for accidents and mistakes that lead to escalation, but also potentially could push China into a corner where it feels that it has no option but to, to respond. And certainly, I think the indications are increasing that China is moving closer to a tipping point, not about invading Taiwan, it's not ready to do that yet, but to a tipping point at which it concludes that peaceful reunification isn't any longer an option. It's not there yet, but I think it's getting closer. And looking at broader U.S.-China relations, we've discussed before how these are at an almost all-time low in their history. So what are the dynamics that are driving this relationship downward at the moment? It's a very complex nexus um, of relationships, but I think it boils down to a contest uh, between the United States as the incumbent hegemon and China as a rising power that's not necessarily seeking to displace the United States in quite the way, you know, in, in terms of replacing everything that the United States currently does. I mean, China doesn't, for example, want to be in charge of a world order that requires it to have 800 you know, overseas military bases and global military commitments. But China is looking for global affirmation as a major power, global acceptance and global recognition and the respect that comes with that. And it perceives that recent U.S. actions, in particular those taken in the latter part of the Trump administration, are designed to contain China and to keep it down. And it's very interesting that recently the Chinese foreign minister set out three kind of top-level conditions for an improvement in U.S.-China relations, which are about requiring the United States not to disparage or seek to undermine China's political system, not to try to impede China's development and not to interfere in China's core interests, which of course include Taiwan. 
So do we have a sense then that U.S.-China relations will change either for the better or otherwise under the Biden administration moving forward? For example, how should we understand a possible recoupling between the two governments? Since coming into office, the Biden administration have done little, if anything, to reverse some of the actions taken by the Trump administration that uh, China found most offensive and difficult to swallow. And I think there is a widespread perception on both sides that the current relationship is the product of systemic and structural factors which are not easily going to be wished away. That said, I think there are signs that uh, both sides would like to put a flaw under the current deterioration. And we've seen some small signs in recent weeks and months, the Biden administration in particular, taking some measures to address you know, China's immediate concerns, in particular, the, the release of Meng Wanzhou, the uh, chief financial officer of Huawei, who was in Canada undergoing extradition hearings to the United States. That action in itself has engendered a reduction in tension, I think. And there are other things the Biden administration has done, such as renewing visas for Chinese students, one or two other small things like that. My sense is that any such moves are unlikely to amount to much more than a tactical pause. The overall dynamic of the relationship is such that it's really hard to en envisage a dramatic improvement in relations in current circumstances. David Gordon, Senior Advisor for Geoeconomics and Strategy, you wrote a brilliant essay on vaccine diplomacy in this year's strategic survey. There's been much talk about vaccine diplomacy during the pandemic, but what does this actually mean? That's a very, very good question. It gets back to Nigel Gould Davies' comments earlier about the lack of cooperation. When COVID hit, the international response to COVID uh, was from the very beginning marked by a lot of distrust and worries about intent because of the way that China handled the, the early stages of it, in particular, the lack of cooperation from China in the search for what were the origins of coronavirus, those early days of COVID and the controversy over the origins lie the roots of how COVID became part of this larger issue of competition and rivalry between China and the West and the, and the U.S. in particular that both Nigels have commented on. In the face of that, there was competition about who would be able to come up with the vaccines that would be critical for enabling the world to get over COVID. That's sort of the, the origins of vaccine diplomacy lie in, in that competitiveness around vaccines. This, by the way, is in pretty sharp contrast to some earlier episodes of great power relations around health issues. Certainly in the 1950s, there was a lot of collaboration 
between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the development in particular of the oral vaccine against polio, where a lot of the testing of the early oral vaccines, the so-called Sabin vaccines, were done in the Soviet Union. I think the turning point was the Soviet Union's propaganda campaigns in both Africa and the Middle East. In the final years of the Soviet Union, in the late 1980s, there were these huge Soviet disinformation campaigns about AIDS and the origins of AIDS uh, and the Soviets claiming the spread of AIDS in Africa uh, was a result of a U.S. effort to hurt Africa. It was back in the time of, of AIDS when diseases first began to be heavily politicized into the, the framework of competition. And indeed, there was a parallel Russian disinformation campaign that China also at least partially glommed onto during the the early days of COVID. The, the Chinese were anxious to take attention off of themselves. The Russians had, had again started a disinformation campaign about COVID originating in experiments undertaken by and on the U.S. military that got out of control. You had the origins of competition there, and then you had, as part of this larger competition that Nigel Inkster commented on, almost everything now uh, is fitting into this framework of competition and conflict between China and the U.S. and the West, and COVID ended up in the same paradigm, and that's the origins of vaccine diplomacy, was this competitive move to, to see who could gain some advantages for being the agent for getting the world out of COVID. So maybe a simplistic question, but if we were to pick a winner or a loser of vaccine diplomacy, who would be who? So far, I think China got out there first, but the horses did not have uh, the training needed to, to keep up the race. Right now, the West has developed the most effective vaccines. Now, vaccine Diplomacy has not run its course by any means. China is in the process of developing its own mRNA vaccines. Uh, we will see how this second round of Chinese vaccines comes into play. The other actor on vaccines, of course, is India. India is really one of the leading producers of vaccines in the world. They had hoped to get out there early, but the, the rise of COVID internally to India kept India on the sidelines. So you now have, I think, at the end of 2021 and into 2022, when most of the non-developed world is still looking at very, very, very low levels of vaccination, I think it's going to be a pretty wide open race. So 
China got out first, but the the fact that their vaccines were were not effective enough, I think, hurt them a lot. Western vaccines were effective, but the West has not provided anywhere near the volume of vaccines to the developing world and to countries where COVID has become a larger and larger problem. Even right now, uh, as we're beginning to move in the West to additional shots uh, of vaccines, I think that's going to prevent the West from from taking uh, as large a role as they had committed in the export of vaccines to the developing world. So vaccine diplomacy is, uh, we, we are still in the middle of the race. I think a huge issue will be, can China develop a second round of vaccines uh, that are more competitive in terms of effectiveness with those developed in the West? Thank you, David. Perhaps if you'll allow me, I'd like to ask an additional question, but focused more on U.S. politics this time. The chaotic events that played out on Capitol Hill on January 6, 2021, in the lead up to President Biden's inauguration, in some ways exemplified the depth to which U.S. politics has been polarized under former President Trump's administration. So how do they stand almost one year into the Biden administration now? There is very little sign that the polarization of American politics is easing. President Biden's performance has has not been terrific. His support in public opinion has gone down. If you had the series of miscues that Biden had made, the result of the early days of, of, of the presidencies of either a Clinton or an Obama or any earlier Democratic presidents, their own party allegiances would have been challenged a little bit. Biden has been protected, frankly, uh, from paying the cost in public opinion from early missteps because U.S. politics is so polarized now. Republicans will, will stay with a Republican. Democrats stay with a Democrat much, much longer. And I think there's a great worry in the U.S. now as we head into election season for our midterm congressional campaign, the security of elections, the trustworthiness of public officials in charge of elections is now very much at risk from both sides. I think both sides believe that the 2022 congressional elections could be marked by electoral fraud undertaken by the other side. So this is a very fraught time in American politics with potential enormous negative consequences for the rest of the world if something does not begin to shift this dynamic. And Nigel Linkster, on July 1st, of course, the CCP celebrated its own centenary. So how does Beijing view the state of U.S. politics at the moment? Is this beneficial or actually of concern to Beijing? Obviously, China in, engaged in schadenfreude around the 6th January events. Use that, uh, as I think I said in my essay, to pronounce the last rights on U.S. democratic politics. 
obviously they will recognize that there, there are you know, pluses and minuses to this. On the one hand, a, a United States that is reasonably you know, unified uh, and stable and predictable in its behavior has at least got the benefits of predictability and is something that, you know, that, that is easier to deal with. A United States that is divided in the way that uh, David just describes was, was a large part of what led to the Trump administration's actions against China in, uh, starting in 2018. There is a real risk that in, in some way Chinese interests could become collateral damage in this. If things get you know, really difficult in the United States, the inevitable tendency to try to externalize some of these tensions could uh, play to China's disadvantage. They have mixed views. The kind of official mantra uh, of, of the Chinese party state for some time now has been the East is rising, the West is in decline. You know, this is in every Chinese leadership speech, you know, leading article, editorial that, that you come across in Chinese language media. Underneath that sense of confidence, even hubris, that we saw very much in evidence during the party centenary celebration, you know, there is an awareness that the, the world's becoming a more com uh, complicated and conflicting and unpredictable place. And of course, the CCP might have its own struggles as well internally in China. Indeed, from a number of points of view. For all, as I said, the confidence in hubris manifested on the 1st of July, there is a growing realization that the tailwinds that facilitated China's rapid emergence as a global power of consequence have now turned into headwinds. China's assertiveness is uh, engendering growing uh, international resistance and challenge, while domestically China is confronting the reality. In a sense, they're dealing with the problems of success, but these problems are much more complex and intractable than those that they faced during a rapid economic rise facilitated by a unique conjunction of global circumstances that are unlikely ever to be repeated. And you've got all sorts of uh, new pressures you know, internally, further complicated by the fact that in recent weeks, Xi Jinping has taken a series of very bold moves to move the entire economy in the direction of a more conventionally Marxist-Leninist format, common prosperity agenda, which is actually a Maoist-era uh, concept, making it clear to the private sector that they are there to facilitate and enable the plans of the party state. There's an interesting paradox here between China's talk and language about the demise of the West and the demise of the U.S. in particular, and at the same time, Chinese writings about the role of the international system and the nature of the international system and its implications for China have become not more positive, but more negative. That for many, many decades, China believed that despite tensions with the West, that the international conditions remain quite propitious for their rise. They no longer believe that. And indeed, part of this move to a dual circulation domestic economic strategy came from the belief that the international environment is no longer nearly as conducive to China's rise as it was. So you are seeing a 
a new focus in, in China on the domestic side, as Nigel said. On US-China, I think one of the paradoxes here is that one of the few things that Republicans and the Democrats, that, that liberals and conservatives agree on in the United States is the challenge posed by China. So if you're looking at what might be a way out of this polarization in the U.S., it could very well be an even more competitive and conflictual approach to China. And I do think the Chinese, and that was what Nigel was talking about as the fear side uh, from Beijing when they look at current U.S. politics. Nigel Davis. To David's point about trends becoming less propitious for China, I'll just add that our strategic survey includes drivers of strategic change, which uh, uh, offer a data-rich approach to comparing and analyzing the trends driving state power and resilience. And uh, in compiling that this year, uh, a number of statistics and comparisons jumped out at me. And, and one, in, one in particular was that the median age in China is now greater than the median age in the United States. And it seems to me that, that has potentially significant long-term implications for China. It reminds us of Kissinger's old point about China becoming old before it becomes rich. Well, thank you, all three. Just to round off, I have a question for each of you. What will you be watching in the next year with regards to Nigel Davis, Russia, Nigel Ingster, China, and David Gordon, the United States? On Russia, the end of this year marks the 30th anniversary of the breakup of the Soviet Union into the 15 successive states. And it's quite clear from the developments of the past year that there's in no sense a, a, a sort of stabilization or equilibrium reached in, in that part of the world. We had a very significant conflict in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, for example, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We saw the biggest uh, Russian military buildup on Ukraine's border by Russia since 2014 and other sources of instability as well. I think the big biggest picture in the region is the growing authoritarianism within Russia as uh, Russia heads towards next stress point, which is the 2024 presidential elections. But that has foreign policy consequences too, not only in terms of the West's responses to that growing repression, but also in the increasingly adversarial pose that Russia itself strikes to the outside world. In particular, watch relations between Russia and Belarus. You have an, an embattled authoritarian leader there, more isolated than ever from his own population and from the West alike, uh, and Russia seeking to reel that in uh, and to create some more integrated entity comprising Russia and Belarus. Uh, and if it did so, that would have very significant implications for NATO and the European Union. I'd be looking, obviously, at the evolution of US-China relations. Also, in relation to Taiwan, as I said, I'd be looking for evidence that China was starting to give up on the idea of peaceful reunification of Taiwan. Domestically, within China, I'd be looking at evidence of pushback against Xi Jinping's current approach, which is undoubtedly detrimental to the interests of significant power centers within the party state apparatus. 
And whilst I don't subscribe to the possibility that Xi Jinping might be the subject of a coup d'etat, it's quite clear that there have, there has been a certain amount of uh, plotting against him. What I'd be interested to look at is the extent to which he is obliged to trim back on some of these rather extreme policies that he has announced within recent months. I'm looking at three themes here. The first is, can the U.S. sustain its economic recovery? Will President Biden reappoint Federal Reserve Chairman Powell to another term, which I think will be actually quite important for market confidence in the U.S.? The second theme is the midterm elections. And here there's much more vulnerability in the process than in the outcome. I think that that it's overwhelmingly likely that the Republicans retake the House of Representatives, probably retake the Senate. Will these elections be, be perceived in a framework of distrust uh, of the outcome, or will they be accepted uh, as part of clean, competitive politics? The third theme, will the Biden administration find a way to put a floor under U.S.-China? And when they came in, there was a lot of talk about a framework that included competition, conflict, but also cooperation. Will the Biden administration feel strong enough to to offer some pathways forward for U.S.-China relations along a more cooperative pathway? Thank you so much. And thank you to all three of you for your insightful discussions today. We look forward to this year's strategic survey launch. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information on this year's strategic survey, please visit the AAAS website. And if you missed the strategic survey launch on the 27th of October, 2021, you're in luck. You'll find a recording of the event on the AAAS website, as well as on its YouTube channel. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the AAAS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the AAAS website. Thank you and see you next time.